Hey, before we begin, a quick reminder that today's episode is made possible in part by the Todd and Stephanie Schnick Foundation. Find us at schnickfoundation.org. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Let's go, y'all. You are listening to The Foundation Podcast. Our goals are to help you build the foundation to live your best life, help solve problems, better serve humanity, and to become a beacon to help inspire change. We connect you with today's leaders, affecting positive and impactful global change. And now, here are your hosts, Todd and Stephanie Schnick. Good morning and welcome back to the Foundation Podcast. I am your host, Todd Schnick. Grateful for you to swing by and join us. Uh, As you know, my friends, uh, over the course of this year, it's a very challenging year. We've uh, uh, I've welcomed some old friends onto the show to share some wisdom and some knowledge and some thoughts and share some counsel on how we can all thrive and survive through these challenging days of this pandemic and all that that implies. So uh, really, really grateful to have a, a gentleman back on the show. In fact, this is my third time uh, featuring him on the podcast, so it's good to reconnect with him. Let's welcome back Kevin Kelly. I don't even know how to describe you. Futurist, maker, author, there's so many things I could call you. Well, Kevin, welcome back. It's my pleasure to be here, as always. Thank you for having me. The pleasure is mine. I uh, I do appreciate, as always, you carving out a few minutes for me. For those listening who don't know you, there's not many. Uh, what is your story? How would you describe yourself to those uh, seeking to know who you are? Yeah, I package ideas, I guess, is the shortest way to say it. I have been making magazines, websites, newsletters forever. So. Some of those ideas are mine, and I like to collect other people's ideas and package them. And I do words, and I do still images, and I'm moving into doing video because I believe that the center of the culture has moved away from books to moving images in space and time, also known currently as YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no doubt. And this pandemic is no doubt kind of enhanced yeah. and, and uh, sped up that transition. In fact, we're going to talk about how this pandemic has, has impacted kind of your world and how you look at it. I want to kick off, uh, and again, doing all this, Kevin, through the lens of those listening and, and learning from you and how they can adapt to these challenging times and, and improve their lives and, and find success and satisfaction. You are a futurist, and it's funny. I've been doing this podcasting thing for over a decade now, and there are some guys who I've interviewed several times, such like yourself, but some of these guys are now calling themselves futurists. Uh, it's one of those cool, sexy titles that I think a lot of people uh, grab because it sounds good. To me, you are the epitome of what a futurist is. For those mm-hmm. listening who hear that title and say, well, what, what does that really mean? There's, you ask 10 people, you probably get 10 different definitions. What is that? How does that look conceptually? Well, yeah. First of all, I do not call myself a futurist. Have never called myself a futurist. I'm much more interested. I think the real trick is to try to predict the present. I think just trying to figure out exactly what is going on is what we kind of do. And on a day like today, I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> I realize, oh my gosh. So trying to predict, trying to actually figure out what's going. And then if we can figure out what's going, and then if we pay attention to the past, to the long past, Together, though, we can kind of make a little bit of a direction about where things might be going. What's the momentum, so to speak? 
And that's, I think, about the best that we can get. So in the early 80s, I spent a lot of time, compared to most people, living online, exploring the early online bulletin boards and then the online systems. And I came back and I would talk about that to clients and other people writing about it. And it seemed like I was talking about the future, but actually I was talking about what I had already experienced. And I try to do it as much as possible. And, you know, what I'm writing about the augmented reality or virtual reality is because I was trying out and trying to live in that and making my predictions, making my forecasts, making moving things forward based on what was happening right now. I call it sometimes listening to the technology. So I'm listening to see how people use things, not as they were designed, but how the street uses them, how they actually use them. And so that for me is the origin of whatever suggestion about where we're going to is really trying to pay attention to what's actually happening right now. It may not be everywhere. We're saying, okay, this little, you know, you talked about Gibson's idea of the future erupting unevenly around the world. It's already here, but it's just unevenly distributed. So my job is to sort of go around and look where the future's already erupting in the present and saying, oh my gosh, here it is. I'll describe it and we'll be there. I have a theory that as the rich go, so go the rest of us. So you look at to see with people who have unlimited money, how do they spend their time? What do they do with their lives? And that would be some indication about what will happen to the rest of us when everything becomes cheaper that they're doing. So those are the kinds of, of things. It's really about trying to see what's actually going on right now. Yeah. Well, you did it to me again. Uh, I never have a conversation with you where I, I, you know, this idea of uh, predicting the present, uh, that's going to rattle my brain for a couple okay. of days as I think on that and reflect on how that impacts me and what that means for me. Fascinating stuff. I do know you care about long-term thinking. And I yes. do know that most people stink at that. And, and I, I know you have some projects kind of built around this idea of long-term thinking. And this, and another thing that I think most people are not very good at is, is just doing plain old, serious, deep thinking. We all have heard the story about how Bill Gates goes off on these think weeks where he goes off solid, in solitude, brings his bag full of books, and he just had, and a lot of people say, oh, I, I do that. No, <laughs> most people aren't thinking like Bill Gates is thinking. Talk about this idea of why long-term thinking, and, and we don't do that with like our relationships and our careers and governments certainly don't yeah. seem to do that. Our geopolitics don't seem to be thinking long-term. Talk about that idea of long-term thinking. Right. Thinking and why so, that's so important. In many ways, our civilization, everything we look around us is partly a result of things, projects that may have taken many decades to accumulate to arrive where we are. So we have ro a road system that was built long ago. We have, we benefit greatly in an unappreciated way from the works of the past. And many of those things are ongoing projects. Many of them are, require maintenance. And some of them took many, many decades to complete. And so if we're honest, we should recognize the fact that we benefit from long-term projects. And it's also true that we could have benefited even more by paying attention to things like rare events that are inevitable over the long term, like say a tsunami or earthquake. You know, these are kind of unpredictable in the specific, but they're completely predictable and inevitable in terms of the long term process. And pandemics are another example. 
I personally worked on several scenarios of pandemics way, way before. So we knew exactly how they were going to run out and what to do. So those kinds of things of, of taking kind of a long view of saying, well, there's lots of events that we don't know when they're going to come, but we know that they are going to come. Um, hundred year floods and things like that. And so what we're trying to do, what we want to do is we want to become good ancestors. We want to be become good ancestors and get better at it because we've benefited from good ancestors in the past. And in a certain sense, we kind of have, if we aren't good ancestors, we're colonizing the future. We're, we're, we're basically, we're robbing the future of its potential benefits. And what we want to tr try to change your perspective is to say, can we make something where most of the benefits are actually going to come into the future, right? And VCs are really very much focused on scale. This is the whole trick to scale. Is they want to talk about, do you have the skills to scale up? Have you figured out how to take something that's valuable and scale it up? That's what we're all about. It's that kind of growth. Well, yes, a lot of VCs and entrepreneurs have learned how the tricks of how to scale things. But we're, there's another scaling that we need, which is a scale over time. So we want to scale something that starts off small and the effects and the value of it grows over time, keeps cascading, getting better and more and more valuable over time. That's long-term thinking. That's what an investment into, like, say, building roads would do. You can have the roads increase in value over time. We cannot imagine the, uh, the world without roads now. And so they that they have been one of the things that have been scaling up over time. And so we want to be good ancestors that can scale value over time, that can trust future generations to do even better things with what we have invested into them. And we do that by trying to increase the options, trying to make something where the options keep increasing into the future. There's more and more possibilities. And so that's what we mean by long-term thinking. We don't mean long-term planning. We're not trying to say, we have a plan. We have a thousand-year plan, and it's going to follow this because we know exactly what's going to happen. This is the Harry Sheldon, Sheldon you know, Foundation thing. No, no, we're not talking about long-term plans. We're not talking about deciding what future generations are predicting. We're talking about being a good ancestor and making a, the kinds of investments that will scale up over time. And the thing to say about this is that corporations are probably not the place to do this. The market is not the place to do this. It is designed not to do that. It is designed to be much more short-term thinking. The problem is, is that over the short term, this is inefficient in the short term. That's why governments are one of the institutions that we have now imagined to do this because governments by definition, need to be inefficient. You want a government to store 2 million face masks just in case. That's incredibly efficient. There's no company that can say, well, we'll we're going to budget this and we're just going to have these in a warehouse just in case. We're going to have 100% extra doctors on hand at our hospital just in case. No, that's inefficient. That's the kind of thing that governments need to do we need to pay them and understand that they're going to be inefficient about this. It makes no sense to do this in the short term, but this is all on what makes complete sense over the long term. Now, it may turn out that governments are not the only institution because there's lots of things that governments, because they're inefficient, 
we may not want them to do it. So there could be other institutions and nonprofits are another one of those kinds of things that we've invented to that could do some of this stuff with more power, with more resources, whatever it is. And there may be even other institutions that we have invented or could invent that would help us become good ancestors. But we have to understand, I think primarily, is that we can't expect the free market and corporations to do this. We have to have other mechanisms. Well, I love this idea of being a good ancestor and that, that, that encapsulates this idea. And I love you talking about the difference between long-term thinking and long-term planning because most people long-term plan and say, well, see, I'm a long-term thinker and they're really not. But isn't it human nature to be selfish and, and not yeah. think long-term, not, not think in, uh, in terms of being a good ancestor? I mean, I, therein lies the problem, right? Sure. It's absolutely human to be selfish in short term, but it's also the humans, it's only humans who think long-term. So, 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 so that's the other thing. The other mark of humanity is that we do think in terms of investing and payoff in the long-term and no other animal does it. So that's part of the humanity that we have invented. I, I claim that we have invented our humanity, we've self-created it, that we are still in the process of creating what it means to be human. And part of that is by thinking in terms of the future and investing in terms of the future. And so we are capable of doing it and we are capable of get, getting better at it, even though we are inherently, like most animals, um, selfish. But the mark of humanity is that we can transcend that and we become more human, I would argue, as we do that. So the whole purpose of technology is to make us better humans. And we get to have the question that no other animal has ever asked themselves, and, and we're now at that point, is like, what do we want humans to be? Okay, so not only are we self-creating, but we even get to decide what it is. And I would say what we want humans to be are beings or civilizations that think in terms of the long term, more than we do even right now. And we can do that culturally, and even to some extent over time, again, we, we modify ourselves, but culturally is probably our primary way that we learn. And so we want to culturally emphasize the benefit, the value, the skill, the essential humanity of thinking long-term. And it's the long-term imagination. So part of thinking long-term and part of that long-term imagination is imagining the future. And science fiction, in some senses, is part of that long-term imagination of, of trying to imagine what we could be, imagine what the world could be like, and then using that as a guide to try and get there. Let's, let's, let's imagine a world government. Let's imagine um, a tricorder. Let's imagine, you know, an internet uh, for everybody or AR augmented reality. Let's imagine that first. And then um, that long-term imagination is part of how, of the kind of long-term responsibility that we have. Well, the idea of thinking about technology as a means to making us better humans is probably something we could talk for hours about and, yes. and, and how that works and how it's how people aren't doing it that way or aren't thinking about it. It's a fascinating subject. I'm still trying to get my head around this idea of predicting the present because where I was going with this discussion of thinking long-term was that we really also stink at being present. We love to, to worry yeah. and, and have angst over what happened in the past. We love to stress and worry about, about what's happening in the future. And we really don't do well living right, right. in the present. And if I'm, probably poorly translating what you were saying, but in essence, what I, what I got was, 
by being present, you can really have a good window on what's happening in the future and talk more about why we're also not good at, at existing and, and thriving right, right. in the present. Right. So, so I talk about the long-term imagination. The thing to guard against, I think, is being ruled by fear because we can imagine so many things that would go wrong. We can imagine, and we do, all the reasons to be afraid. And, and the problem is, is that fear makes people stupid and we do stupid things when we're afraid. So while we want to exercise a long-term imagination, we want to avoid the fear part of it because we know, we have history that when you're afraid, you just don't do your best. And so the problem and the challenge right now is, like say in Hollywood, almost every single imagination we have of the future is a dystopian, fearful future. If you tell people AIs, genetic engineering, they think, you know, Terminator, Galactica, they have only, the only images that they have are fearful images. And so I see part of my job as to be delivering a view of the future where there's ubiquitous technology, AIs and robots and genetic engineering, and it's a future that we want to live in. It's, it's a future that we're going to try and aim for. And so I think we can overcome the fear that we generate in the present through what I would say evidence-based imagination. There's lots of policy or decisions that we made on what we kind of imagine the future to be, which I think, we need, as I said, we need to really kind of imagine it. But when we make decisions, we should make those decisions based on the evidence. And there's so many things that we believe about the future that we have no evidence whatsoever. And let me just give you one tiny example. So there's a common idea that technology is increasing the power of a single individual to harm and kill people. That trope I hear all the time. Technology is allowing a single person to kill millions or whatever it is. The problem is there's not a single shred of evidence of that happening. If you look at, say, this take something crude, like the number of people killed that a single person could do, it hasn't changed. We can imagine someone getting hold of an atom bomb and killing, but it's never happened. It's never happened in biotech. It's, the, 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 you know, even the worst nuclear explosion, the Manhattan Project, the number of people died, compared to the number of people who worked on that project, is still in order of a person who might be able to kill 100 people, maybe, maybe 1,000. And that really, you've, that, that's been true for a long time. They could burn down the building in the old days. So we can imagine how that would be possible. But if we actually look at the evidence, there's no evidence for the ability of a single person. And that's because the technology, as it gets more sophisticated and powerful, also becomes more social. These, as these technologies become more complicated, they're actually governed much more by a group. And you're persuading a group to do something is very different than having a rogue individual. And so it's possible, you know, there could be small groups of people that try to do things, but those technologies, as they become more powerful, are also just being constrained by the fact that they are more complicated, harder to use, harder to deploy. They have all the same problems that we have of uh, getting our computers and networks to run, right? I mean, that's the problem with every single thriller movie in Hollywood about some road guy. It's like, you can't even get your computer to upgrade. How are these guys getting all this stuff to work on the first time? It's like, it's completely unrealistic, you know? So I'm just using that as one example of we sh when we think about the future and 
we really want to look at the actual evidence of what's happening. Again, this goes back to really figuring out what's happening right now. When we can imagine, imagine so many things, and that's fine and that's good, but when we make decisions and make policies, we have to come back to the evidence. I want evidence-based futurism. Yeah, I don't see a lot of that in Washington, do you? So this, <laughs> well, that's not just Washington. It's just, again, I don't hear that from Washington about this, this one example. I, I think this is, this is out there. So I don't no, want to blame. No, I, I know, this is a common problem. I was born in the late 60s, and so I, I haven't really had any long-term, I mean multi-year thing. This, this pandemic we're in, is, we still got a year or two on this thing before I think yes. it, it, we revolve back to what we might define as some sense uh-huh. of normal. I didn't go up, live through a depression or a world war, or I guess the only thing you could say that I really lived through maybe was, you know, the last 20 years of the cold war, but this pandemic's changing everything. It's how we're looking at the world, how we're thinking about the world, how we're going through the world. The economy is going to change. World economy is going to change forever. Science is going to be looked at different. It's going to change everything. How, how do you look, tell me what your thoughts are in terms of how this pandemic is changing, how you kind of engage with the world, think about it, see where it's going, where it's been and, you know, and predicting that present. Yeah. So again, so, so, so the, this pandemic is coinciding with other large-scale disruptions. And so it's very hard to unravel what's due to it alone or the other factors. And I would say another primary factor right now that's at work in this overall disruption is the fact that America's role in the world is being shifted. China is rising and our own role is being altered, and that is a huge psychological blow. And whoever is president, it doesn't matter. This is part of what's happening. And so all these other changes, you know, kind of ramifications from that, from manufacturing to high tech, all this stuff is also being altered. And that's happening at the same time COVID is going. So there are other things. There's a demographic shift that's still just beginning that's going to be in in, in the process, this is kind of a demographic implosion. And so, and then there's positive things that are also happening at the same time, um, the rise of AI. So, so uh, it's very hard to kind of just isolate what is due just to COVID. But I think one thing that COVID has made me aware of is, is the fact that the price of urbanity is that you, we are much more susceptible to, you know, to, to viruses. That seems kind of obvious now, but this, this idea of that we're going to have these things forever is part of this process. And so I would be very, very surprised if it dampened our general movement into cities. There's some speculation that it could halt or reverse the general migration into cities. People are saying, well, cities is where you get viruses. Let's at least stop one ring outside the city, which is where a lot of the real estate energy is going right now, or we go to these smaller cities like Austin. And so I think that could be temporarily, but I don't think in the long term that that's st- that'll be a strong enough deterrent for the general dynamics of the benefits of modern urban, um, the density, the serendipity, all the other things that are going on, the possibilities that are created, I think are going to be even more powerful than the downside of having uh, susceptibility to viruses. So we need to have technological solutions to that. So I think having systems of rapid testing, you know, rapid vaccines, maybe mandatory vaccines, all kinds of, of things I think for the future will be part of living in a city. So 
it may be that what we're seeing is, and that, by the way, the thing about that is it becomes a global problem. The, the virus is a global problem. So there might be some more movement towards global infrastructure. And it's also essential that you have basically universal health care because it doesn't, you know, it, everybody has to get the vaccine, everybody in the world. And so it may be that, that one of the outcomes of this is a kind of a, an agreement, a movement towards universal health care, which may require things like mandatory vaccines. But that mandatory part means that it's universal. And so with that comes other things. So, so, there, so what I can imagine, I'm not predicting this, I could imagine one scenario where this increased our movement towards universal healthcare and universal meaning global, globally universal. But I don't think, my first guess, again, without much evidence, I don't suspect that it's going to overcome the, the gravity, the gravity well of cities. I would be surprised, but it's certainly a scenario we should consider, um, but I would be surprised. Talk sort of a corollary to that last discussion, uh, uh, how the, the, the typical human is interacting with technology uh, right. as a result of this pandemic. You've, you've seen it where a lot of tech companies are thriving because of our now increased reliance on places right. and things like Amazon, for instance. But you're also starting to see more and more people, which is music to my heart, that we're re-engaging with paper books. <laughs> you know? uh, yeah. And this is, again, another impossible, too big of a question for you to answer on a short podcast kind of a question. But any quick thoughts on how the, our interaction, your typical human beings listening to the show's interaction with technology is evolving with this pandemic? Yeah, I mean, the most evident to me is whereas you or I at least cer- certainly I-, I have been, you know, video conferencing for decades. I think suddenly everybody else, you know, it's kind of like the movement from bu- going to bulletin boards to the internet. It's like, yes, people now kind of everybody understands the power. It's, it's, it's like the early days of bulletin boards in the sense it's really crude and the technology sucks, but you can feel the potential. You can sense how powerful this is if it got better. And I think that's kind of where we are. Everyone waking up saying, well, you know, it actually, there's something there. And this is just the beginning. So I think there was certainly going to be much more conferencing, teleconferencing, whatever we were going to call this, Zooming, and maybe, and particularly as we move into the spatial ability to do it in um, 3D space, which is incredibly, incredibly powerful. People don't realize how that one little bit of information of making a volumetric spatial component is so persuasive, is so compelling in terms of presence. Okay, so, 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 so I kind of intellectually think you're there, but I don't feel like you're there. But the magic of the spatial computing, the mirror world, is that I feel as if you're really there, even though you may still be a little tiny thing in half of your body, but I will feel like you're there. And it's really, really powerful. So I think we're going to see this, but I'm not predicting that this is, becomes kind of like the dominant form because that's not the way technology works in my eyes. We have additive, we have an additive process. It will become yet another option. And the benefit of face-to-face meeting will still be incredibly valuable. And the question is, what I say is like, what's the rhythm What's going to be the, the rhythm of meeting face to face? So it may be that the technologies of collaboration, which is what I would call this, 
the technologies of collaboration, remote collaboration, may be used even if you're sitting in the same building with somebody. And that you may only come into that physical place a couple times a week or maybe once a week. All right, so that comes valuable. So it's like, what's the, the frequency of, what's the rhythm? So yeah, you may do, um, we'll call this Zooming or ARing, whatever it is, conferencing, remoting, a couple times, a couple days a week, and then you may come into some little group, local group, once a week, and then maybe like once a year, you have your big company get together. I don't know. I mean, we're going to figure that, and it'll be a little different. But there'll be all those options, okay? And so, and we'll increase other ones. And so, so what we usually have is we very rarely does technology take away a possibility. It usually just adds another venue, another channel, and that's what I see this as. Some people it may become dominant, but for others, it may just be part of their workflow. Well, two areas in that direction that you're talking about that I think have really intriguing and, and I think globally positive change opportunities is like tele, telemedicine. Right. And then certainly, and this is where I really want to go next, is remote education. Now, our whole educational process right now is, which was, in my view, broken before this started. Right. Is yeah. going through massive disruption with this remote learning. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, what, what yeah. is your thought on where ed, our education goes? That's again a very broad conversation, right? Uh, let, but where does yeah. that go from here? Let, let, let me ask, let me talk about the telemedicine, which I think is absolutely correct. And mixed into the telemedicine is the fact that a lot of it could also be done by AI. Yeah. And the best doctors in the world are not actually humans; they're not actually AIs; they're actually teams of doctors plus AI. But an AI doctor is better than no doctor, okay? So, so the, the, what you actually want is a doctor working with AI. A human doctor working with AI is the thing they want. It's better than just the doctor himself or herself. But an AI doctor is better than no doctor. And so for a lot of people in the world, a remote AI doctor is really kind of one of the things that they'll be reaching for. I have a friend who runs a concierge medical service in San Francisco, concierge medical services are basically you pay a lot of money and you have your doctor on call anytime, day or night. They make house calls. They, they're just there. It's like a personal doctor. And they have only 100 patients each, which is like phenomenally few right. for most doctors. So he will, anytime, day or night, he'll come to your house for your kid or anybody, anything. It doesn't matter. Um, he'll also go on the phone. But he says, you know, 99% of his interactions with all his patients is text. They could talk to him on the phone. They could have him come to the house, but they just text him a photo. They're doing telemedicine already, even though they have like the ultimate access to anything. They actually prefer, in a certain sense, telemedicine. So this is not like a step down. I'm saying that this is like the step up, <laughs> right? So... Yes, I think there's, you know, already doctors are doing, you know, remote surgeries. It's all possible. It will still be an option. There are certain times, even my, you know, country or doctor, when he will make house calls. But I'm just saying, you know, for the 1% of the time, he will come to your house and that's what you want. And so we want to have all those possibilities. And by the way, you get those in the cities. So the education. I guess where I'm coming from is I'm not necessarily talking about the segment of our population that are lacking technology. And that's another right. challenge that we got to deal with. Right, right. I'm looking at this more from the, this is a really awesome opportunity to do some amazing things with our educational process. The stories of teachers yeah. 
kind of walking through their city and showing their kids through Zoom actual historical land. I mean, just, yeah. there's, there's so much, and there's so many bigger things that are possible even, even than that. I think this is a chance for us to really do something big here, and I hope we don't blow it. Right. No, I mean, I, I'm, I'm shaking my head because there's just so much. It's so huge. The, the challenge and opportunities are just almost overwhelming. And I don't even know where to, where to begin because right. it is um, so big. Not that we're going to solve things, but let me just say one thing about it is, you know, our kids went, through, I have three kids, they went through all kinds of schools, including a period of where, or, or actually just one year where I homeschooled my son, which was really fantastic. And that's sort of like a lot of people have kind of been falling into some version of homeschooling, maybe not even be prepared or ready for it or even really capable of it, just given their schedules. I was very blessed for that year of not of being able to do that. But, but let me, let me just sort of step back and say, I think, I mean, all the, you know, all the things that we did in homeschooling are all kind of fun. And, and in some senses, I don't think that matters so much because I think there should be, I've kind of changed my mind in terms of what I think the essential goal of education should be. And that's just sort of a recent um, epiphany. And I'm going to see if I can explain it in concisely. So I think because of the way technology is coming, we're going to be perpetual newbies, always having to learn new things. Even the digital millennials today who rub their hands and say, I'm a digital native, you know, I understand this stuff. Well, in 10 years from now, 20 years from now, you're going to be an old geezer and you've got to learn all this new AR gesture stuff like the rest of us. And so we're going to be forever having to, to learn things. So for me, the foundational golden skill is learning how to learn, learning how to learn. And the golden ticket out of all that is learning how to optimize your own learning. How do I personally learn the best in the many different ways we learn? Because there are different kinds of learning. There's learning physical skills, there's learning languages, there's lots of things. How do I, myself, optimize my own learning? I am 68 and I've spent my life learning and I don't know the answer to that question. I want to know. Is, how many reps do I have to do? How long do I have to sleep in between reps? What's the, you know, is it space repetition? The, I, um, what works on me the best? Because I'm going to, you know, spend the rest of my life learning new things and how to learn. And that's what school is, should be about is not teaching you the facts and stuff. Now, there is one sense in which you can't learn about learning in the general thing. This is Marvin Minsky's insight. You can't think about thinking in general. You have to think about something specific. You can't learn about things in general. At some point, you only learn by learning specific things. So there will be specific things to learn. But the real skill that we want to teach and every, have everybody graduate from is when they graduate, they know in a very concrete way how they learn best. They know how to learn. And I think that's not something you can just do by itself. I think it requires testing and discipline and practice and teachers and the outside and others involved in helping you come to understand how you learn the best. Not just understand, but actually how you can practice learning the best for all the different ways. That is what really the thing you should graduate with. When you're graduating, you're saying, I know how to learn. I mean, I know how I learn. That is the super skill. That's the superpower. And for me, yes, there can be, there has to be specific things. And there's, for me, it's about character as well. So learning how to learn is not just about intelligence, I think, which is overrated. 
It's about character. It's about grit. It's about being honest. It's about the self-examined life. It's about all those things are part of, of learning. So it's not just about intelligence tests. You have to have a beginner's mind. You have to have humility. So, so there's a lot of character building uh, that goes into that as well. But that, to me, is what I want the graduates to graduate with, is they saying, I know how I learn best. Well, I was going to close by asking you, what's your best piece of advice for those of us going through this pandemic and all the, the, the relative economic struggles and, and all that that implies? And, and it sounds like maybe it's that. It's, that. It's, it's thinking about how you focus on your continuing education and learning to learn. Would that be the answer? Um, that's one of the answers. The, the thing about that, as I said, I don't think this is a process you can do just by thinking. I think this, this process right. of figuring out how you learn best requires a very a curriculum. It requires a lot of effort. It's not something you do ad hoc. I think it's, it's like, you know, if you want to become the best uh, basketball player or something, you, you, there, there's a program you need. There's, there's diet and there's physical therapy. It's, it's a challenge. So I think there, you know, looking for the silver lining in the, in the COVID is, is, you know, it's like, okay, I, I personally, the last time I got on a plane was a year ago, one year. If you told me that two years ago, I would not have believed that I could not get on a plane or not be on a plane for a whole year, 12 months. And here's the weird thing about it is I do not miss it at all. I do not miss traveling. I was, I was, it's two of us. I was traveling so much and I, and I honestly don't, I mean, it's, it's like, I don't have any craving for it. I have no, if I never got on a plane again, right now today, if I never got on a plane again, I would be fine. If I never went anywhere else in the world, I would be fine. And that's really, that's completely shocking to me. That's like, that's like, well, yeah, traveling is kind of a big part of you. And so I have my workshop now, which is my way of doing other. But I think that kind of a reset and thinking about, you know, people spending time reconnecting with their family, those kinds of things, it's kind of like we've taken like a sabbatical. <laughs> a global sabbatical. <laughs> and I'm a huge believer in sabbatical time off, fooling around, wasting time, Sabbath, taking, having a Sabbath, all those kinds of, uh, of things, because I think, and, and that's what we've had. And so it's, for me, the value is that we've had a global Sabbath, a global sabbatical, and we'll re-enter with a renewed appreciation and a renewed energy. I was working on this piece um, with Pete Leiden, who did the writing for Wired. It was about the long boom too, what I was calling the bigger boom of the next two decades. I think that's still a, a, a possibility, a scenario, that we come out of this sabbatical with you know lots of provisions and maybe even social distancing, but that we will come out with renewed energy and prosperity for the next couple of decades. I think that's an entirely valid scenario. It's not a prediction. It's just a scenario. Well, as I've been saying all along, uh, yeah, challenging times, but boy, there's some amazing opportunities here too. Well, yeah. Kevin, as I suspected, there's a lot of notes here that I didn't get to. Uh, uh, well, I guess you have to have, have you on a fourth time. Uh, before I let you go, should anyone need to connect with you, learn more about your work? How do they do that? Yeah, my initials, KK. So kk.org, O-R-G, is the website. I have a Technium blog. I I have a really cool newsletter called Recommendo. I love that. Every Sunday, there's, um, I make two recommendations and my f- colleagues make um, two each. So there's six 
really short recommendations of kind of interesting, cool places, things to follow, read, do, um, use, recommendo. And then we're coming out with a book of the best of four years of recommendo um, this fall. I have a podcast about cool tools. And my latest project is A Vanishing Asia, which is a huge, oversized, way too big book of almost a thousand pages that weighs 25 pounds and way too big for your lap that has 9,000 images and captions about the culture that's disappearing in Asia between Turkey and Japan. I have a Instagram, Vanishing Asia Instagram site. Yeah, I'm following amazing stuff. Went one a day to give you a kind of a taste for it, but it's, it's about a part of the world that's disappearing, that's from the past and disappearing. And I have no nostalgia for it, but I, I, I do think that there's solutions, design solutions that are be provocative. So, so what it is, is, is otherness. It's, it's an other way of approaching the world. And I truly value otherness. So this is a book of other. And I think it's really useful and kind of provoking ideas about urban planning, fashion, um, architecture, things like that. Yeah, that website of yours uh, sucks me in every time. I end up spending <laughs> way too long there. So many Vanishing things. Asia is, again, the title. Yeah, yeah. Can't wait for that project. Uh, well, Kevin, as always, my friend, uh, grateful for your time. Uh, learned a lot, as I always do. Took a lot of notes. Uh, great stuff. Appreciate uh, your insights. And uh, I will no longer think of you as a, as a futurist, but as a packager of ideas. So thanks again for stopping right. by and making time. Predictor of the present. All right. That's all Thank time. you so much. I appreciate it. All right, Kevin. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time on yep. the Foundation Podcast. The Foundation Podcast is produced by Intrepid Media and is made possible in part by the Todd and Stephanie Schnick Foundation. Learn more by visiting schnickfoundation.org. And thank you for listening. Now, get out there and do some good. And we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.